I'm Daniel Giacopelli. It's the 11th of May, and this is The Courier Daily. We've been catching up with small business owners every day, from London and Stockholm to Paris and San Francisco, to find out ways to adapt and grow during the crisis. Well, today, to kick off the week, we're going rogue a bit and featuring a single conversation. A bit earlier, I caught up with Colin Nagy. He's a regular Courier columnist who's more often than not on a plane, going somewhere like Tokyo or Dubai, maybe even Bali. He's also a columnist for travel site Skift, appropriately, and he's one of the two authors of a great new email newsletter called Why Is This Interesting, which you should totally sign up to. Well, as things start to open up again ever so slightly, Colin and I thought we'd catch up about the future of travel and hotels. What does opening up actually mean in practice for a hotel? How will the guest experience change? And what will the sector look like in a year? The next 20 minutes are pretty packed with great stuff and insights, so here's Colin. You know, I've been down in North Carolina for about two months. My parents live down here, and it's been wonderful to kind of see a true spring. You know, normally I'm based in Brooklyn, New York, and it seems like we get about two weeks of proper spring before it goes from freezing to sweltering. So I'm looking out, and there's some beautiful trees and birds chirping, so it's been a a pretty good quality of life, and it's been nice to not be traveling at the pace that I normally do. So, you know, trying to embrace the best of a weird moment, I suppose. You're always on a plane going somewhere. I mean, literally every time I talk to you, you're in Dubai or Tokyo or Singapore or Miami or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a pleasure and it's one of the things that's important to my life, both creatively and from a business standpoint. And it, it is a little weird to have the dot connecting that kind of comes with that disrupted. But what's been nice is just connecting with a, a ton of people that I like, the return of the the phone call. You know, it's been nice to have the kind of social connective tissue be reinvigorated in a way. Yeah, totally. One of your big, not pet projects, but just kind of like passions and focuses is hospitality, travel, hotels. I mean, you write often for Skift. Uh, we've had Rafa Ali on the show. Obviously, that whole industry is completely at a standstill. You've been following trends in hospitality. What do you think right now is the, from your perspective, the state of hotels? Can they bounce back? You know, right now, it's been seismic. I think the hotel companies that have been reasonable, they're not highly leveraged. They're well-run businesses. They're going to come out of it. I think that it has been a bit of a margin call for those that have been you know, very, very highly leveraged. And, you know, it is disheartening to see these types of brands that have a lot of hype. And then the second something goes wrong, you know, every employee is laid off. I've been inspired by the sort of more family run businesses. You know, there's an African company called Singita that do some of the, the best safaris at the high end. And, you know, everyone in Africa looks to them as being the industry standard. And so, when Luke Bales, the founder, decided not to lay a single person off in that entire company, from the bush guides to the chefs to a lot of these people who, you know, Singita is their lifeblood, that had a very positive seismic effect in Africa because they, uh, a lot of people looked to what Singita was doing and decided to make the same decision to retain staff. So I think that there have been some really inspiring people in the business that have held up the, the right example. What we're going to start seeing and what we are seeing is there's a lot of flexibility that's happening, right? So I got a note the other day from, I think it was Alila Hospitality Brand. You know, they're saying, hey, in Bali, if you buy a few nights at our lowest possible room rate, we'll give you a villa, right? 
Kevin Wendell, who's this amazing entrepreneur who runs a hotel called the Essencia down in a little bit south of Cancun. You know, if you buy a thousand dollars, he'll give you fifteen hundred dollars. So he has a very well healed audience, but. I don't think there's many people that would say no to that type of ROI on their their investment. So, you know, there's starting to be some innovation, but I think flexibility is a big thing. And and then with that, there's going to also have to be changes in communication, changes in like the demographics of who you're speaking to, and also changes to the actual customer experience. And we wanted to talk to you about that in particular. So the guest experience when hotels do reopen again. What will hotels look like? Will there be concierges anymore? Will it be self-check-in? What's it going to be? You know, I think um, those who have incredible like digital touch points are going to stand to benefit. I spoke to the gentleman that runs the Four Seasons downtown in New York, and he was saying, you know, because we have the app that allows for the, the check-in, all of your preferences are saved, any requests, the level of granularity you can do with the Four Seasons app that's going to be a big advantage for them. But I think with the end-to-end guest experience, we think about all of these touch points, you know, particularly at a boutique or luxury you know, hotel, and sometimes they're invisible, but they're, they add up to these like feelings, right? So you come home and there's a perfect Mandarin Oriental bookmark in your book that you left kind of on the table. Your cords are put together by a little perfect Velcro strap. I always say that housekeeping, you come back and, and all of your toiletries are perfectly arranged. There are these small touch points that are very kind of conscious and deliberate. But I think what's going to have to happen is a rethink of some of these touch points and like what are the opportunities to convey cleanliness or sterilization? What are the small ways that we're communicating and adding comfort and peace of mind without being overbearing? Also, there's just touch points in the hotel that are going to completely change. You know, I mean, as you know, a great London hotel, a great lobby is both people that live down the street, people that just flew in from Dubai, people that are on their honeymoon. It's like a coral reef of interesting fish. And I think, unfortunately, what we're going to see in the near term is, you know, I think hotels are basically going to be pretty private, pretty much guests only. You might see a resurgence of some of these, like, private guests only spaces. You know, at the Crosby Street in in New York, there's a couple spaces that are just reserved for guests. I think that that that'll accelerate. That's really fascinating because a lot of these hotels have just launched, you know, co-working spaces in their lobbies effectively. Exactly. There's a wonderful hotel called the Eaton in D.C., and that's their whole thing. It's a community, right? So you have a lot of people coming in. The energy of kind of, you know, people at work, there is like a palpable energy that comes with that. I think that that's going to change a lot. Not a lot of people have thought about is, you know, F&B is going to change quite a bit, you know. I have no desire to be at the decadent buffet with a million people, you know, following this, even if it's completely safe. Um, So I think that you're going to have to reconfigure F&B for room service. You're probably going to have to think about the cost structure of those things, because sometimes room service is just marked up to like the nth degree where it's like it's like a special treat and like indulgence. I don't think people are going to feel like they're getting fleeced when they're doing something that actually makes them feel safe. There's a lot of innovation that's going to come from this, right? What is the bento box breakfast that is operationally not hard to put together and it doesn't have as many moving parts as a beautiful breakfast spread at a, you know, at Le Maurice or something. I think you're going to start seeing innovation. And then we are going to revert to some of these things where in the past, you know, like places where you would hang your breakfast order outside the door by a certain time. I think you're going to start doing that. It's like, give us your lunch order, 
you, you have multiple places where you could take it. You could take it out on the veranda. You could take it here and making sure that everything is socially distanced. And is this within the context of like the next six, eight months? So you think this is going to be happening five years from now? Obviously, you know, it's hard to predict all this, but has this changed, do you think, the guest experience forever? You, you know, I think that... Um, I think with the social distancing, I think that that is going to probably be the six to eight months. We look at even, you know, hawker centers in Singapore now have tape marked off on two out of four of the, the kind of built-in tables. So I think the social distancing thing is going to be six to eight months. However, I do think that there's going to be behavioral changes that are completely going to um, going to stay. And I think that this is accelerating contactless. This is going to um, accelerate a rethink in the F&B and how it's done at a hotel. I mean, in the best of times, nobody wants to touch a landline in their hotel room, right? I mean, because they think it's dirty and the remote control. At a hotel's, what are they going to have, like a certification that this room has been deep cleaned an hour ago? Imagine like a perfect little, you know, Four Seasons sticker or something on the remote saying this has been sterilized to this standard. You know what I mean? I think that you're going to start seeing more of those. The trick is, is the balance, right? Because you don't want to make it feel like you're going into a hospital, right? You don't want to make it feel like it's you're going into a clinical space. One of the other brands that I've been inspired by is Six Senses. And I talked to um, Neil Jacobs, who runs that business the other day. And they've been about wellness and really, really every single touch point of that brand goes very deep in terms of wellness and down to their F&B, down to their treatments, down to the spa things. And I think that that side of hotels is going to continue to innovate, you know, whether it's like immunotherapy in, in terms of, you know, I think you're going to start seeing certain types of superfoods kind of be on the menu. If a place can create a nurturing environment, then that's great. And, and also, you know, it can be profitable, right? As, as a friend of mine, Harry Jameson says, like, the green juice at Soho House costs more than a G&T, right? So this acceleration of wellness, you know, might actually be pretty good business. And what about the lower end of things? I mean, yeah, we could talk about the Four Seasons and everything, but what about the lowest tier room at the Ace Hotel or something like that, you know, a hundred pound room where it's really, really tiny and you might not have all the bells and whistles at, you know, a really, really expensive place? I think what you're going to find is the acceleration of a category of hotel called select service, right? So this could be something like an AC hotel where you go in, it's clean, it's minimal, it does what it says on the tin. You know, there's not a doorman kind of taking your bags. There's not a ton of staff overhead, which makes it a pretty good investment for real estate investors. And also what AC did and was kind of ahead of the curve is like, there's no paper, there's no like accumulation of junk in the room. It's almost this like, you know, very sleek surface where it's very easy to clean and, and turn over and, and sterilize. So I do think that there's going to be a movement perhaps away from an Ace Hotel aesthetic, which is like richly textured with like a lot of stuff, you know, there's a vinyl player and a record player and all this awesome things. There's a good guitar in the corner. It's like, I don't really want to be playing a guitar in a hotel room that like 17,000 other people. I'm not even like a crazy germaphobe. I just feel like some of these amazing like lifestyle touches that we loved so much, it might be rethought. At the lower end of the equation, you have to be able to turn those rooms over. It has to be like logistically easy to clean and sterilize. And I think that you're going to see the acceleration of select service. Problem with select services, it's a very thin line between minimalism and austerity, right? <laughs> you don't want to feel like you're checking into like cell block D, you know, with like one little thing of soap and in economic downturns, 
sometimes these select service hotels can veer into the austere, unfortunately. Yeah, what was it? Ian Schrager's public hotel. Yeah, he he was he was running after that. He was doing it with like a lot of the panache of Morgan's heyday before that brand kind of lost the plot. It really never manifested exactly what it was trying to do because I stayed at the public in New York and the common spaces are beautiful and like everything, but you know, it's really hard to check in, you know, on this kiosk and there's something always goes wrong. So, we're still in the first innings of how this might work. To be perfectly honest, some of these like capsule hotels in Tokyo are the ones that have figured it out, you know, where it's it's almost completely contactless. You know, there's one at Narita Airport where you can actually just go catch some Zs and there's like literally it runs on itself. Aside from the cleaning, there's not a lot of uh, overhead involved. When this all does kind of end in a way, a lot of these small hotels, I assume, will have been wiped away because they couldn't afford to last all of the months without constant revenue coming in. Maybe, or and maybe some of the big chains will be able to sustain. But what's the hotel landscape look like? Will there be more big soulless chains and less quirky mom and pop places? You know, that's a very good question. I think there's going to be the people that have run responsible businesses and had serious cash reserves and weren't highly leveraged. I think the super flashy stuff, the stuff that had a ton of leverage and was a little bit precarious. I think that those are going to be wiped from the earth. And I think what you're going to see at a at every level is a reversion to brand, right? So if something had a really strong brand and it had a real reason for being, I think that that is like the core muscles, provided the financials are okay, that can kind of get someone through this, right? I love that Claridge's, which has been resilient through, you know, war, I love the fact that they put first responders up in that hotel. I think that there are a lot of hotels in London that are that are flashy, and but those sort of core muscles and, and knowing truly who you are are the things that kind of help people get through this. And you're going to start seeing a search for those real brand truths, right? And I think at the corporate chain thing, what we've seen is the proliferation of of brands that don't have a reason to exist, right? They don't even have their own swim lane because like, they're surrounded on every other level by another brand or another product. And I think that the tide might go out on that strategy. And you might actually see a lot of rebranding of those new concepts into the things that actually have some real emotional resonance with consumers. Do you think prices will be higher when hotels start to reopen? I think prices are going to be higher in airlines. I'm not sure prices are going to be higher on hotels but one example that why they would be is if hotels have to leave a room vacant for 24 hours in between stays. Kevin Wendell at the Ascensia said that you know they're going to be padding um, a certain amount of time. I think it was over 24 hours between guests. When you do the math on that, it's you're kind of rate limited in a way in terms of in terms of revenue. And that's purely just to make customers feel comfortable, or that's the time it takes to clean. That's a comfort thing because a lot of the studies are. You know, coronavirus can last for X amount of time on certain services based on the science. So in addition to the cleaning, you know, it's that safe measure. The real problem and the real kind of issue that's going to hold up the entire travel industry is the fact that, you know, airlines are going to have to do social distancing. They've cut routes so much, right? So on long haul routes, you know, JFK to Dubai on Emirates, or Cathay Pacific, Kennedy to Hong Kong, or they're just simply not flying them. So when they come back, 
if there is pent up demand, probably more from a business travel standpoint, you know, these prices are going to be pretty high, I think. It might be that business travel just does not go out on the road at all for the next, you know, eight months. And a lot of these planes are flying with empty, you know, business class cabins and reduced economy cabins. But I just think that a lot of these airlines are also going to be very, very conservative when it comes to relaunching routes. The exception to that is I saw that Qatar is saying that they're going to keep flying to 80 destinations by June. And I think, you know, obviously everything runs through Doha. I just don't know if that's a realistic business reality. I mean, obviously they are backed by a uh, sovereign and very wealthy nation. And perhaps there's a competitive advantage to that where they can suck up a lot of business that, you know, would have gone to Turkish or, you know, Etihad. I think that that's the thing that kind of worries me is long haul travel being prohibitively expensive, except for the highest end business traveler. So it might be some sort of way of dividing people into, you know, the haves and have nots, those who can travel and those who can't. There was a really wonderful column in the FT. It was saying that, and this was pre-coronavirus, you know, it would be a tragedy if this little pocket of time where a huge swath of like the middle class can be as mobile as they are, if that was like a blip on the radar screen and an anomaly as opposed to the reality. Because a lot of these things are subsidized, right? It's like the cheap easy jet flight to Mallorca, the Uber that's way below what it actually costs, like all of these things that have given mobility, which I think is net net a positive thing. If more people can kind of travel and and see, I think that that's generally like net positive empathy generator for the world. But it is scary to think about how, you know, maybe a large swath of the population will just not be able to to do the long haul travel, you know, that trip to Bangkok or that honeymoon to Sri Lanka or something like that, and instead sort of revert to domestic travel. But, you know, silver linings, I suppose, you know, if you're in the U.S., the Grand Canyon, you know, road trip might come back in style and you know, Niagara Falls might see a big surge. You'd be surprised how many people are saying that. Even, you know, Brian Kelly, who runs the Points Guy, you know, who's very much a proponent of uh, air travel, is saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to get some, like, tricked out RV and I'm going to go to Jackson Hole and, and, and see Yellowstone and, and all these places. So you're going to see a reversion to some of those things that we might think of as, like, families in the 60s doing. And there's probably ways to do those in an elevated way or an interesting way. You know, there's a company called Beyond Canvas that does these beautiful sort of canvas tents and like really, you know, national parks and things like that. And I hate using the word glamping because I think it's a stupid construct, but you're in an environment, it's not austere, but you still kind of smell the air, you see the stars and there's a, um, there's nice sensory elements. And I think that that's what I'm finding with travel here is that these sensory elements are going to kind of come more front and center. The things that people have been missing, you know, the smell of a campfire, the feeling of, of cold mountain air, the ability to see some stars. Um, I think that you are going to see a reversion to our primal selves in some ways. I mean, I gotta, I gotta say, man, I, I've thought of maybe 15 business ideas just in the past, uh, you know, 15 minutes talking to you. There are a lot of opportunities out there. There's a lot of tragedy and there's a lot of bad things going on. But I mean, smart entrepreneurs can find interesting things to do and, and to pivot on right now. And what I've been telling a lot of the hoteliers and hospitality people is sometimes they have to remember that hospitality is a creative act, right? And every day, these people are so amazing at improvisational things, taking care of a guest. It's like the logistics of doing what they do. And that's the basis of like amazing entrepreneurship. 
right? The ability to pivot, the ability to kind of move with the, the winds. And I think that the smart people and the most truly passionate people in the industry are going to be okay. And I think that there might actually be some opportunities in this. Obviously, in downturns, there's always a lot of innovation because of constraint. And I'm really hoping that, that that's the case with travel and hospitality. And that's it for today. Make sure to check out Colin's email newsletter at whyisthisinteresting.com. And while you're at it, sign up to our Courier Weekly email newsletter, and that's at couriermedia.co slash sign up. If you like the episode, why not subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts. Courier Daily is back again tomorrow. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. We'll see you then.